0: Welcome to Highlawn Baptist Church in St. Albans, West Virginia, where our mission is to know Christ and to make Christ known. We're so glad you're here. For more information, visit us online at Church.org. For 2023, we're embarking on the Year of Our Lord, a user's guide to and through the Scriptures. So grab your Bible and join us as we journey through the Bible. Well, good evening, and we are in Session 5. We're still in the book of Genesis for the next couple. Today we're taking a look at the patriarchs. Anytime God speaks through the prophets, chances are are good that he's going to say, Thus saith the Lord thy God, or um, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We refer to those as the patriarchs. So today we're covering the part of Genesis that uh, touches on the lives of Abraham and Isaac. But let's open up, as we always should when we delve into God's Word in a season of prayer, if we bow our hearts together. Heavenly Father, please help us now as we undertake the task of reading through your Word in a year's time. Help us to not only skim the pages, but to absorb them. Lord, to meditate upon your Word, to make it part of ourselves, and to see our place in your kingdom through its pages, to better recognize your grace, uh, both through these stories, through these accounts, and through our everyday lives. Help us not only to, to obtain information, Lord, but to obtain wisdom, guidance, and so that our lives might be changed and the lives of those that see us may be changed as well, Lord, as we become closer The image of your son is, and as hopefully they see your son reflected in us, may they come to know you, Lord, before it is everlastingly too late. These things we ask in the name of Christ, our Savior and Lord, for the sake of whose everlasting kingdom we pray, amen. So today's topics are going to take us through chapters 12 through 26 And again, what I'm going to try to do is give you the highlights, not a blow-by-blow account uh, the way that we did this in years past. So there will be a lot less of us reading together through the course of of this, but I'm going to try to give you as much information as I can of of what I think will benefit you, uh, themes that you will find not only in this passage, but throughout the rest of Scripture. And a lot of what we're touching on in... The Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy has to do with what theologians call the law of first mention. Now, what do I mean by that? When something happens, when a theme takes place in the Bible where it, is fir- where it first happens, pay close attention to all the events surrounding it because it will have meaning, it will have significance. For instance, As we uh, study through the life of Abraham, we find that when God and two angels come to his camp, he runs out to meet them. He recognizes who they are. He uh, washes their feet and he offers them three measures of flour baked into bread. And those very same three measures of flour keep echoing on in scripture eventually becoming the Old Testament fellowship offering. So there's a lot of things in these foundational pages that we're studying that we need to pay attention to, particularly when it also comes to the account of the sacrifice of Isaac or the offering of Isaac, a pivotal point in Abraham's life, as we'll see in just a second. So some of the themes that we really need to pay attention to here, uh, particularly when it comes to Abraham's covenant, is that he's the beneficiary of an everlasting covenant. And this sets up a pattern that will keep echoing as we go through Scripture up until our time today as the church. We'll see that he struggled a lot, even though he was considered a righteous man in both Testaments, he struggled between relying upon his own human wisdom and God's wisdom. This is particularly evident when uh, we talk about Ishmael and Isaac. The chi- one is the child of uh, begotten through earthly wisdom. The other one, the child of the promise, a child that comes about as an act of God's grace. There's also this curious incident in uh, as Sarah's identity in Egypt. When he has to sojourn in Egypt for a little while during a famine, he introduces his wife Sarah to uh, Pharaoh's household as his what? His sister. He tries to confound the Egyptians so that he himself will be safe. He tries to concoct a plan through his own volition instead of relying upon the safety and security of God. So these are things that we need to look out for because they apply to our lives as well. There's his relationship with this strange character called Melchizedek that we'll talk about in just a little bit. Uh, He is the king and priest of, of the Most High God in a city called Salem, a city whose name literally uh, through Hebrew means peace. Salem and uh, Shalom are very closely interconnected. In fact, Salem, the kingdom, the city-state of Salem, will later on become Jerusalem, which means literally New Salem. There's also, of course, the offering of Isaac, as a testament of faith. And that's a passage of scripture with a whole lot of misconceptions that I hope to dispel and give you the vocabulary to dispel. So Abraham's family comes from Ur of the Chaldeans, which is the capital of of Sumer, what would later become Samaria. Um, He's the father of Terah. Terah, whose name, if memory serves, I believe that his name translates as uh, to delay. And we'll talk about that in just a second. In the book of Joshua, he is identified by Joshua himself as an idolater. He and his whole family before him. So Abraham is someone that the Holy Spirit introduces himself to and then becomes a remnant out of, or the Chaldees. He marries his half-sister, Sarai, who is fathered by Abraham's father but comes from a different mother. Now, this is Abraham's journey. When Abraham is called out of Ur of the Chaldees, Ur is that city, that small little blip on the map by that first green arrow in the far southeast of the map, the Mesopotamian region, right along this, the banks of the Euphrates. And at first, he follows the river north to a community, uh, the Arameans, where he parks for a little while while he awaits, and I hate to say this, but he waits for his father to pass away. Once his father's death occurs, then he finishes his trek down to Canaan, there in the southwest of the map. This is his original call, where he travels from the Chaldean area through the Mesopotamian region up to Padan Aram and through the city of Herod, where his relatives remain. In fact, this is where his servant would later go to pick up a a wife for Isaac. And you'll see the same thing happen when Jacob uh, goes into exile against his brother Esau. This is where he ventures to. This is the second half of his journey from the north, kind of close to where in today's time Israel would meet with Syria and, and Turkey in that area. And then eventually he would come down to the following, uh, the Sea of Galilee down the Jordan River into the area of the Great Salt Sea, what we call today the Dead Sea. You'll notice in the bottom to, to the south there are also these two strange cities on the plain there at the bottom end of the, uh, the Dead Sea, Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, when you talk about kings, when we hear about kings later on, we're not talking about giant kingdom nation-states as we're used to in today's time. We're talking, for the most part, about city-states. We're talking about, like most of us have studied about the Greek city-states of classical literature, where Athens was its own kingdom, where um, Tyre at one point was its own kingdom, where um, Sparta was its own kingdom. And so on. So, for the most part, Salem, the city of Salem, which later becomes Jerusalem, uh, was its own kingdom. So, a lot changes over the course between Genesis and the book of Joshua. In Genesis 12, Abraham is visited by God, and during his call, he gets these promises that his family will become a great nation, that God will make Abraham's own name great, that Abraham will be a blessing, and not only that, but his family would bless what? All the nations of the world will be blessed by him, all the peoples. Now again, in some cases, when the Bible mentions nations, it doesn't always mean kingdoms or countries. For the most part, like in the Greek word ethnos, it's talking about people groups, what we, in some cases, some of us may refer to as races or as tribes. I will bless those that bless you and I will curse those that curse you. In other words, I'll bless your allies, meaning literally your friends, those that wish to be a blessing to you, and I will curse those that curse you. If they're an enemy of yours, they're an enemy of God's. Is basically what he's setting up there. If they're a friend of yours, then they're also a friend of God. Now, I want you to bear this in mind through to today's time because this this covenant that is being enacted with Abraham is a what kind of covenant? What is the time stipulation on it? Exactly. There isn't one. It is an everlasting covenant. Covenant, one that is built upon through successive covenants, up to and including the covenant of Christ's relationship with the church. Again, all nations will be blessed through Abraham. The Mosaic covenant is built upon the Abrahamic covenant, that you will go into the land and possess it, that it will be a land for you flowing with milk and honey. As long as you are faithful, you will be rewarded. But if you are disobedient, you will be punished. Okay, For the most part, the Mosaic covenant. We'll get into that a little bit later. And later on, that in turn gets fed into the Davidic covenant, especially when you consider that all nations of the world, all families of the world will be blessed because the Messiah was promised to come from whose line? King David's. So all of these promises, all of these covenants feed into each other. we go on with abraham's story are there any questions before we continue anything up to that point it is very self-explanatory and a lot of this you would probably have already been covering in just in sunday school here's where things get a little more technical in genesis 14 Moses, in his narrative, sets up the battle of the nine kings. And in this battle, you have nine kingdoms. Now, this is also interesting. From the Shemites, remember, in those times, someone's ethnicity, if you will, uh, in the Bible, is determined based upon their genealogy off of Noah. So you have Shemite tribes, Shemite kingdoms, Armaphel from Shinar, Arioch from Eleazar, Ketalammar from Elam, and Tidal, which uh, many of your translations just refers to as a king of nations, and I'm supposing that that means it's a city-state that uh, had political sway over others. Then you had the Hamites, or actually the son of Ham, who is Canaan, father of the Canaanites. And Noah's, for, a lot of, for, for this, Noah's prediction actually comes to Bera, who is the king of Sodom, Birsha, who is the king of Gomorrah, Shinab, who is the king of Adish, and Sheber, who is the king of two city-states, Zeboim and Bela, which in your copy of God's word in your, in your ma- maps will later come to be known as the southern city of Zoar, whose name strangely means Light. Uh, The reason that Shember has a star next to his name is that he dies apparently during a preceding battle and the dual kingdoms of Zeboim and Bela get split. That's how you end up with eight kings mentioned here, but nine kingdoms. I want you to notice about the, in in Genesis 14 where it names these kings, Ketelarimer is actually the overlord of this region. He's the big King of Kings, if you will, who these the rest of these kings kind of report to, but it mentions Amraphel first, king of Shinar. Now, what I want you to realize is, in this case, the kings are not being listed by importance in the story, but importance overall. Shinar is a series of plains located in the far east of the Arabian Peninsula on which what city was built? And they left the ark and dwelt in the plains of Shinar where they built a city, and that city was called Babel, which means in effect he later, the kingdom that he's a part of will later be known as Babylon, which is why it's listed as important as it is here. Now moving on. This is a close-up of that region from the previous maps. This is where Abraham is, is located. Now, the plain on which the battles mostly take place is the plains of the Great Salt Sea, the Dead Sea, the place that will later be conquered by the Moabites. And it's down there at the very bottom where you see Sodom, Gomorrah, Zoar, all that in the, in the very lower end of Israel. Now, Canelarimur, again, is the high king of this region. But the Canaanite kingdoms eventually rebel. Now, King Canelarimur is actually able to put down that initial rebellion. And uh, the kingdoms of Zeboim and Bela split. But the Canaanite kingdoms gather again for one last decisive battle in the Sidon Valley, and that's along the banks of the Dead Sea but he attacks and he conquers, he reconquers those kings and he drags off several citizens and a great load of treasure as the spoils of war, including the citizens of the city of Sodom, one of whom happens to be the family of Lot, nephew of Abraham. Big mistake. Now what we find out about Abraham in this scenario Uh, A survivor of the great battle goes to Abraham, or Abram at this point in time, for aid. And we find out in the text that among his household servants, 318 of them are already militarily trained. Now, think about this for a second. Most of us don't even have a housekeeper. How wealthy does someone have to be to not only have 318 household servants? but 318 mercenaries at their beck and call. Now, remember how many armies we're dealing with here. Ketelammer had no fewer than four kingdoms to rely upon for troops. But these 318 servants with military training conquer that coalition and drag back Lot and all the spoils from the city of Sodom. Abraham then takes some of the tithes from what he captures during this, during this city. He, uh, he, he basically lets the king of Sodom have everything uh, that, that he's entitled to back because he really doesn't want to have anything to do with that kingdom. I do not want it to be said that I even got the, what was it, the, the lace or the thong from a sandal from you. So evidently, he doesn't think too highly of this guy. But what he is able to take and keep for himself, he ties a percentage of it to Melchizedek, who is not only the king of Salem, but he is also its priest. That is very important for you to know as we get into the New Testament, particularly to the writer of the book of Hebrews, who uses Melchizedek as an example, as a prototype, if you will, for the position that Jesus holds post-resurrection, because Jesus is not just the coming king, but right now he serves as our great high priest. He ever liveth to make intercession for you, meaning that you have a prayer warrior above all prayer warriors whispering into the ear of God right now on your behalf, and that person is no less than the Son of God himself. He ever liveth to make intercession for us. A priest in the order of Melchizedek, meaning prophet, priest, and king. In the Old Testament, he is the only exception to the kingship, to the royal line, and the priesthood ever coming together. As we'll learn later on, the the kingship is always held by someone from the tribe of Judah. The priesthood is always held by someone from the line of... Aaron, who descends from the tribe of Levi. They are never to be together in one person until the person of Jesus, who is in the likeness or after the order of Melchizedek. And Melchizedek does something remarkable here too. After Abraham tithes to him, he brings uh, effectively a fellowship meal to him consisting of bread and wine. That's a theme that keeps reoccurring in Scripture too, as we'll see, when we pick up with Joseph, who goes to Egypt, and he ends up in prison with a baker and a cup and a wine steward, a cupbearer. So this theme of bread and wine, the supply and the fellowship with God, keeps coming up in scriptures over and over. But again, law first mentioned, so please pay attention to it. the covenantal walk, almost immediately, just as an echo of what will happen in the New Testament. Immediately after, almost immediately after in the text of this incident with the, with the, with the priest and king presenting the believer with bread and wine, God commands Abraham to prepare a sacrifice, but no ordinary sacrifice. In in ancient uh, Near Eastern texts, we here to this referred to as a barat, meaning to cut an agreement, to cut a covenant. Several animals are splayed in half and laid in a figure eight pattern. And the idea is, if this were any ordinary covenant, that the two people, a greater lord and a lesser lord, would walk between the bodies in a figure eight pattern, and while they are walking together, they would be reciting the terms of the covenant, effectively saying, if I betray this agreement, may I be like these animals. So it was not just a religious act, it was also very much a symbolic act. Usually when a covenant is undertaken is between a greater Lord and a lesser Lord, one promising their fidelity or their fealty, the other one promising their protection and their supply. But strangely enough, all Abraham does is he prepares the sacrifices. He lays out the sacrifices. Everything that is supposed to be done in this act of of ceremony is done by Abraham himself. And yet when it comes time to take the ceremonial walk together between him and God, what happens to Abraham? He's put to sleep. God puts him to sleep. And then the very presence of God through fire, we read, makes the covenantal journey. Symbolically stating that Abraham can't add anything to the agreement. See, remember, up until this time in his life, Abraham was constantly struggling between human wisdom and God's grace. Works and grace, human wisdom versus God's wisdom. Abraham cannot add anything to it. Abraham cannot take away anything to it. God, by taking the covenantal walk, effectively puts the the entire weight of this agreement on his own shoulders. All Abraham can do is be its beneficiary. So, in this agreement, there is a, re, a restatement of committing the promised land to Abraham's descendants. But God also mentions that Abraham's descendants would also enter into slavery and be abused for a period of 400 years. Their time in Egypt, as we read later on in Scripture, amounts to 430. 30 years they weren't abused, they were welcome guests, and then after. A pro, excuse me, a Pharaoh who did not remember Joseph comes to power, then they become enslaved. So they will be slaved for 400 years, but once that 400 year cycle is completed, they will return to the promised land having plundered their abusers. Does that sound familiar? Let's move on now to Genesis 17. Uh, Any questions? Uh, I'm sorry, let me pause here for a second because that does cover quite a bit of ground. Anything, any questions that you may have about Abraham's life up to that point? We'll talk about that later as we get into the New Testament. Uh, The question is... uh, If I remember the exact quote, it is something along the lines of um, he has no days before or uh, unlimited days or no days afterwards. I'll I'll have to look that up. But from that statement, there's a controversy that arises. And that controversy is, is Melchizedek somehow an angelic being, not a real person at all, but a supernatural being in human form because he had no father or no uh, mother or no beginning, no end? Or is that a reference to divinity? Is this a pre-incarnate Christ appearance? Uh, That's something else that has been conjectured. Uh, I, I really hesitate to ever recognize one of those, and I'll tell you why, because the Bible itself does not immediately state it. Uh, and we are warned several times in in, in, <laughs> in Scripture itself, do not take away and also do not add to it. So be careful of what others teach you. And lastly, that, that statement simply is a very elegant way of saying that uh, Melchizedek otherwise would be a throwaway line in Scripture were it not for the fact that he is a prototype of something greater that will come off basically that uh, this simple fact is that he has only really two verses in all of Scripture that mention him. And it, it means that pay attention because even though he seems insignificant in that way, he is very significant in another way. We'll delve into that a bit more uh, later on when we talk about him being a type or a foreshadowing of the emerging of Christ. Any others? All right, let's keep going then. Abraham being recognized for his faith and his faithfulness. Faith effectively is the evidence of things, the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things unseen. To put it in more hillbilly ish terms, God is who he says he is and will do what he says he will do. Faithfulness is acting accordingly. God asks you to do something, so you do it. Now, up until this point in time, this has been a struggle in the life of Abraham. Go into the land I will show you. Well, I'll take a stop over in the northern part of Aram for a little while. A few years. Um... Go to Egypt and secure yourself. Well, while I'm at it, I don't really trust God because there are these other people out here, so I'll I'll make up this story about Sarah. It's technically true, but I'm afraid. I'm looking at the problem instead of the God who is really the solution. But eventually, an angel will accuse uh, Abraham before the throne of God, and we will see how that takes place in a little bit later. But in this particular episode, Abraham receives a visitation. Three people come up. And Abraham, while he's in front of his tent, he sees them. And the Bible doesn't outright say that he recognizes him, but he acts kind of foolishly if he doesn't recognize them. Because the second he sees these three, he gets up and runs straight to them. And he welcomes them very lavishly. Not only does he welcome them very lavishly, uh, he also goes out of his way to provide a giant banquet for them to be completed as quickly as possible. Take three measures of bread, or three measures of flour, excuse me. Make it into bread really quickly. Go out and kill the fatted calves, and let's produce a banquet for these people. I, the head of the household, will wash their feet Doesn't that remind you of something? Christ, the greatest of all, washing the feet of the disciples. So he receives this visitation. I personally uh, like to believe that he recognized them for who they were, but I'll leave that up for your own faith journey. Again, he prepares a lavish fellowship meal for them in in a very short amount of time, reasonably speaking, and then uh, he gets his name's his his name changed, and Sarah gets her name changed. Now in this scene, if memory serves, um, God declares or or reannounces his covenant and that uh, there will be a child born to him next year. And Sarah does what? She laughs! And then we hear the phrase uttered for the first time, is anything impossible for God? You, your name will no longer be Abram, it will be Abraham. Your wife will no longer be Sarai, but Sarah. The inclusion of the He, the, the Hebrew letter H, into their names has a very significant meaning. Ach is the breath sound, the ruach sound. Ruach is, like its Greek counterpart, pneuma, is a Hebrew word with several different meanings. It can mean wind, it can mean breath, but it also means spirit, including the letter H in many of your commentaries in the names of Abram to Abraham and Sarai to Sarah, indicates that the presence of the Spirit of God is with them, symbolically. So effectively, you have Sarai, whose name is a diminutive, meaning princess, transforms into queen or noblewoman, basically meaning that you're growing up, or you better grow up, I guess, Abram, which means exalted father, is changed to Abraham, which means the father of a great multitude, the father of many nations. Isaac, who I forgot to put up there incidentally, means laughter, commemoration of this event. Circumcision is also instituted for all the people of the Abrahamic covenant in this point. And Abraham starts to bargain with a lot of, shall we say, hutzpah, for Lot's family. And I want you to imagine this scene for a second. And it's kind of hard to imagine it for me. It's hard to imagine it without thinking of, of Abraham with a Mel Brooks accent. Because Abraham goes to God and he effectively says, uh, Will the... Will the good grief, the, the, the chutzpah of this guy. Think, he goes up to God and God already proclaims he's going to witness the evils of Sada and Gomorrah so that he can pronounce judgment upon them. He already knows it. But Abraham, not fully understanding uh, the nature of God, I believe, goes up to him and he says something along the lines of will the judge of all the universe or will the king of all creation, uh, will the righteous one destroy the entire city if, say, there are even 50 righteous in it. If there are 50 righteous, then I will not destroy it. All right, what about 45? 40, 35, 30. Would you believe 10? I mean, he goes down the numbers trying to to bargain grace for the city on behalf of his relatives, on behalf of his nephew Lot's family to protect them. And as we take a look, uh, again, Sodom and Gomorrah are at the very bottom, the plain located just on the southern banks of the Dead Sea. So two angels uh, in Genesis 19 investigate the city. And kind of as an echo of Abraham, Lot seems to recognize them. And he runs out to meet them. And he offers them hospitality as lavish as he can provide. And the citizens of the city form a rape gang. The male citizens of the city form a rape gang against these two angels disguised as human men. And they proclaim, a Lot actually at this point in time he has two virgin daughters that are already pledged to be married. And in some of your commentaries it will say that um, because of the Near Eastern degree of hospitality and the supreme emphasis of blessing and cursing that it places on hospitality that he offered the crowd his daughters instead. Others will say, and this is up to your own faith journey, others will say he knew that they were heavenly messengers. This, again, is someone that had sojourned with Abraham for quite a while, who had heard the stories of the God who commanded Abraham to come from Ur the Chaldeans and make this insane journey to a place where he was an alien. So there are many that believe that no, this wasn't about tradition. This was about him understanding that he had visitors from God. At any rate, it sounds, it sounds shocking to our ears today that he tried to protect them in this way. But the angels urge Lot to get out as quickly as possible. The angels blind all of the, the members of the gang. And they basically tell What? No, we have to get out of here quickly because we can't destroy the city. We can't bring the judgment until you leave. Apparently, Abraham's chutzpah had an effect. The prayers of a righteous man availeth much. We cannot do what we've been sent to do until you're safe. After an argument with the the angels, they whisk Lot and his family out of the city. And then we see that fire and sulfur, fire and brimstone start to rain down upon them until nothing is left. And in the commotion, they try to make it to the city of Zoar, but they end up in a cave. And right as they're running, Lot's wife hears something which startles her, and she turns around, and what happens? She turns into a pillar of salt. Something about the divine power being unleashed impacts her, and she becomes a pillar of salt. Once they enter the caves, in another thing that is very shocking to our ears, we hear that Lot's daughters believe, basically of that an apocalyptic type of event has happened possibly uh, in the light of, of Noah's flood. Something has happened and they believe that the whole world is now gone or at least uh, everybody within earshot of them is, is dead. So as is the struggle throughout this book, instead of relying on God's wisdom, they rely on human wisdom. And believing that it is their job to maintain their father's line, they get him drunk And they end up having, through incest, the originators of of the peoples of the Amalekites and the Moabites. two groups of people born out of human wisdom that end up becoming the lineal enemies of the people of God from that point forward. Something I want to go over regarding the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. When, when we hear of the, uh, the judgment upon God, we instantly think of homosexuality as being the sin, but the Bible indicates that it's a bit more complex. While that was certainly there, and that was certainly a sin, as proclaimed not only as a sin, but as an abomination in the book of Leviticus, and one that is revisited in the New Testament in Romans chapter one. There are other places where things are more spelled out, and I want this is the word. These are the this is from the voice of Christ Himself. I want you to pay attention to them for a second in Luke seventeen twenty eight through thirty, Jesus says it will be the same as it was in the days of who? Lot, not Abraham. He's going very specifically here. It will be in the same as the day as of Lot. People will go. This is talking about his coming back as the conquering king, the Christ of Revelation. People went on eating, drinking, buying, selling, planting, building. But on that day, on the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulphur, fire and brimstone rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be like that on the day the Son of Man is revealed. Now, this is a bilateral meaning. The first is that Jesus is, yes, again, talking about the rapture type of event where the the righteous, where the saved are whisked out before the judgment happens, before the day of the Lord happens. But I want you to notice the surrounding circumstances that he includes. He's including the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah specifically. It will be this bad at the time when all this happened. So there's a duality of meaning here. Jude calls this out in verse 7 and mentions Sodom and Gomorrah by name. Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns committed, mark this, it highlights its sexual immorality and perversions. So there you go. But it goes on and serve as an example by undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. But on top of that, the prophet Ezekiel goes on to say that there are more sins compounding that we also need to be aware of. In other words, it wasn't a sin du jour. It wasn't simply a one sin that they were fixated on. No, this was the iniquity of your sister Sodom, according to Ezekiel 16:49 through 50. She and her daughters had pride, plenty of food, comfortable security, but didn't support who? The poor and needy, they were unjust. They trampled on the necks of those that served them, the poor, the needy, the marginalized. They were haughty and detestable. Did detestable acts before me? So I removed them when I saw this. They had no regard for the quality of human life or for the image of God and the way the image of God comes to be. So yes, there was, I think the reason that this comes up is that the devil likes it when when we hit a pendulum swing. We go so far and so hyper-focused on one thing that we forget everything else in front of us. It's not one sin, it is sin. And these are symptoms of sin. Paul calls that out in Romans chapter 1. All these are symptoms. God, when, when, when people gave themselves over to these evil desires, God left them alone and left them to their own devices and they became of a what kind of mind? A reprobate mind. We'll get to Romans chapter 1 later on. I won't go into full sermon mode on it right here. But I want you to understand that it was not just the one thing that we tend to only focus on, but these people were evil in many different ways to the point that the grace of God had reached its ultimate limit. And I'm also reminded of a Billy Graham comment And actually a Thomas Jefferson comment, one of the I tremble at the thought of my nations when I remember that God is a just God. Billy Graham also is quoted once as saying when he looked at the condition of the United States and the direction of the society was heading, he said, if God doesn't eventually judge the United States or then he has to apologize for Sodom and Gomorrah. Many link that to the fact that we have a blessing built into the people that we've been allied with up to this point in time. I won't get into all that here, but I find it interesting. But Moving on. God's wisdom versus human wisdom. Again, a constant struggle, well, a, a near constant struggle in the life of Abraham, which does come to a point in head, and I'll we'll get into that in just a second. Ishmael is eventually born of a relationship that Sarah initially... Goes for. In fact, she's the one that recommends it. Maybe this is the way that God intends this to happen. Why don't you take my handmaid from Egypt, Hagar, as your wife, as a concubine, and have the child through her? Again, God's wisdom versus human wisdom, acts of grace versus works. And Abraham's response is effectively, okay. And he has a son named Ishmael. Human wisdom, works, doubt, acts of the flesh. Again, we see his descendants. Ishmael is blessed because he is a child of Abraham. And he has a multitude of descendants. But they all end up becoming enemies of Israel. See, any time that we work out of our own wisdom, any time that we work out of our own desires, any time that we work out of our own human understanding or we want to try to work the problem out instead of relying on God to work the problem out, we always make the situation worse. Especially when we try to push God's hand. Isaac, on the other hand, was the son of the promise, the son of his his wife, the free woman. Paul goes into this in extreme length in the book of Galatians. But Isaac is the gift of the promise. Isaac is grace manifest as a person to Abraham. God's wisdom, God's grace, God's faith. In fact, Paul goes so far as to say that he is, the, he is a child of Of the Spirit. Now, that's not to say that he had a miraculous, or excuse me, an immaculate conception, but to say that his presence was a gift of God and God's will. Then in Genesis 22, we see a bizarre echo of what we will finally come into the Gospels. And we also see. uh, the turning point in Abraham's life when he no longer relies on his own wisdom or his own works type of righteousness. This is a test of faith in Genesis 22 where God commands Abraham to take his only son, the son he loves. Please underline your copy of God's word because this is the first place in the entire Bible the word love is mentioned. The first place, and this is significant law, first mention the first place love comes into the Bible is where a father is prepared to sacrifice a son. Isn't that interesting? Now we can infer later on that this, this little scene happens because a member of the angelic host, gee, I wonder who, Accuses Abraham of not being faithful to God. I'm going to mention the facts here and I want you to put the, the puzzle together for yourself. They go on a three, Abraham grabs his son, the supplies for the sacrifice and two of his servants and they go on a three day journey to Mount Moriah. Mount Moriah is not a single peak as we have, it, have, have a habit to think of. It's actually a ridge system just north of Jerusalem or Salem, at, north of Salem, what will become Jerusalem. On Mount Moriah, in fact, there is a what we would call a saddleback that later on is inherited by a guy named Jerunah that becomes a threshing floor and eventually purchased by King David to become the building place of what? The temple. But on a peak, some say that it's on the saddleback, but there's a peak several miles, or excuse me, a while north of that that was later used as a place for condemnation. Place referred by the Romans as Calvary, strangely enough. On the mountain where God will provide, but I'm getting ahead of myself. a three-day journey to the mountaintop. Verse eight, Abraham says this very strange thing where Isaac is like, okay, we've we've got the wood. Here's us, we've built the altar. Where's the sacrifice? Abraham doesn't say, oh, by the way, you're it. He looks his son in the eye and he says this astonishing thing. That should mean a whole lot to us as Christians. God Himself will provide the sacrifice. God Himself will provide the sacrifice. But Abraham goes through with the ritual just as though, uh, just as though he was supposed to obey it by the letter of the law, and we'll we'll talk about that in just a second. But we hear that in so doing in Romans chapter 4, verse 3, that his faith was counted as what? Righteousness. In fact, this isn't the only place that that's mentioned. We also hear that the just shall live by faith. Not works, but faith. Hebrews eleven seventeen 17 through 19, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. He received the promises, and yet he was offering his one and only, only begotten son. The one whom it had been said, your offspring, your son, your child, will be called through Isaac. So Abraham made this sacrifice knowing that it was through Isaac that his family would become the blessing of many nations. That he would have more children than the stars in the sky. And yet without hesitation for a change, without arguing with God, without trying to make his own way instead of doing God's way, he didn't hesitate. He immediately packs Isaac and his firewood, he immediately gets his servant. He goes to the appointed place, he builds the altar, and he gets there with the knife in his hand. And he hears the voice of an angel call out, Abraham, Abraham! Now, not God, the angel says, Now I know that you are faithful. Verse 19, he considered God to be able even to raise someone from the dead. This is Holy Scripture. Abraham didn't know what God was going to to, do, but he knew that God was going to do something. He knew that Isaac was not going to die, even though he was commanded to kill him. He knew that there would be an intervention of some way, even if it was a resurrection he considered God to be able to even raise someone from the dead. Therefore, he received him back, figuratively speaking. So this is the pathway it took from him to get from Beersheba all the way up to Mount Moriah, or the Moriah Ridge. A three days journey, that's also significant. So he stands as an example of God's faithfulness And also God's desired level of dedication from humanity, from us, from his children. I want you to think about that for a second because that is a tall order. That is an incredible challenge. The same faith demonstrated here by Abraham is the same faith that God is trying to sculpt into pure form in us. I'm not saying that we will have to contend with having to to think of the impossible. But we serve a God who delights in not only making promises to his children, but delights in keeping each and every one of those promises. The angel admits Abraham's faith and there provided for Abraham is a sacrifice. And through this event, this mountain is named Jehovah-Jireh, which translated is God will provide. And thousands of years later, on that very same ridge, another father would not withhold his son, but would offer him up as a sacrifice for many. Do you see the connections? Do you see how the tapestry is held together? God then confirms his covenant on Abraham in Isaac's hearing, in Isaac's presence. And he tacks on this little tidbit in verse 17, uh, basically confirming Joshua's victories, what would later become Joshua's victories. Unfortunately, the wording in the scriptures at the bottom of the chapter seemed to indicate that when this this account was finished, that Isaac and Abraham traveled in separate directions from that point. In fact, if memory serves, Isaac's name isn't brought up again until he meets his bride. Write that down. After The sacrifice, after the offering rather, is completed. Isaac is not mentioned in the narrative, in the accounts of scripture from that point on until we get to the episode where he comes in contact with his bride. Speaking of which, I'm going to tell you this story by the fact and not by the details, and I want you to put the pattern together. A father sends an unnamed servant to find a bride among a chosen people for his son. Now, in the text, we have, uh, we, we believe that this was Eliezer, but in this chapter, it doesn't mention the name. It's an unnamed servant, an unnamed servant person that is manager of all this stuff that Abraham that the father sends forth the servant goes to a foreign land and persuades the bride the bride voluntarily agrees and enters into a covenant of promise in joy the servant then offers gifts to the bride. Is this starting to sound familiar? The offered son returns to the narrative in person, that is, just prior to when he is united with his bride. And they come together in a place, a well called Bir Lahiroi, which literally translates to the well where the living one sees me, the, the well of the living one seeing me, if you ask Strong's definitions. Now, if I didn't mention Eleazar, Abraham, Isaac, or Rebekah, if I didn't mention the words Bir Lahairoi and just mentioned what that means, what does this sound like? The New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed. The Old Testament is in the New Testament revealed. So this is the track from Eliezer's quest, from the place that he leaves the camp up to uh, Panam and then back down, down the banks of the Jordan, the western banks, to the area of the Dead Sea where Isaac meets them and where she not only marries him but becomes a comfort to him as he grieves the loss of Sarah. And they return to the place where the living God sees me. All right. Any questions on what we've just covered? Did you find that interesting? Neat. Okay. Next time we're going to cover the last two were the last of the patriarchs that's usually named and his son who saves the family, Jacob and Joseph. While we're preparing for that, for your discussion groups, I want you to consider uh, a few questions as you're reading along in your copy of God's Word. And I realize that some of your reading plans, you might have already covered these chapters, that's okay. But I want you to think about, remember to share your reading highlights with each other and your journal highlights. But with, with that, I want you in your groups to consider these three questions. Number one, What were you like before Christ? Who were you before you encountered Christ? Before the moment that you became a regenerate Christian, what were you like? What would other people say about you? What would you say about you? And then compare it to who you are now. Who are you in Christ? What defines you in Christ? What has the Holy Spirit done in your life to change you from the person you were to the person that you have become? And another question, a very vital one. What impact is your new example making on others? The impact that you have had, the impact that you are making now. It can be with your family, it could be with your coworkers, it can be with the people that you socialize with. And there's a reason that I'm asking that before next service, because next service, we're going to come across this gentleman by the name of Jacob. To give you a a sneak preview, if you will, the word Jacob literally means heel catcher. One who trips up others. The jokester, the prankster, the not so very nice guys, we're going to find out. If God can redeem Jacob, God can redeem anybody. But in the end, God does redeem him and he leaves him changed to the point that he also changes his name. How is that a reflection in your life? Is ultimately what I'm asking. Who were you before Christ? Who are you now? What impact has that difference made? And is continuing to make? And all of that's people said. Amen. Please don't forget to meet with your groups. Anything else before we dismiss? If not, let's bow our hearts. Heavenly Father, it is again that we thank you for this opportunity to gather, and to gather with your word. And we pray that this uh, this time of teaching and learning, this time of sharing, Lord, is beneficial not just to growing in knowledge, but also growing in grace and wisdom. Help us to better become that person who is capable of defending the faith, of instructing others in the faith, and introducing others to you. Lord, set us to the purpose of knowing you and making you known. As we dedicate this time and ourselves into your hands without reservation, bless it and bless us that we may in turn be a blessing to all those that you put us in front of. And may we have the courage and the faithfulness to meet each and every one of those divine appointments just as faithfully as Abraham did when the time came. In the matchless name of Christ we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us at High Lawn Baptist Church. We pray that you were blessed by today's message. At High Lawn, we believe that when you love God, you share his word. When you love others, you spread the gospel. We would love for you to join us next time, and if possible, to join us in person. To contact or learn more about us, to donate to our ongoing ministry, or most importantly, to learn about the salvation offered to you through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, visit us at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. Once again, thank you, and God bless you.